Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now would you turn in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 21. Turn there, but get ready to turn elsewhere. But let's start there in Acts chapter 21. Our Father, as we open our hearts and we open the Bibles that we have brought to study the Word of God, we pray that your Spirit might show us in the pages of what is written down what is your mind and will for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Vance Havner once said that a leader is someone with a magnet in his heart and a compass in his head. What he meant by that was that a leader is somebody who has a passion about his or her call and knows what that call is. Every one of us here has some occupation, what we do. The question is, what has God called you or is calling you to do? heard a story about a young minister who was being interviewed by a church board for possible pastor in that church. And he was at the interview, and one of the board members was a hard-working, older Irish guy who leaned forward and he said, Young man, did God send you here? And the young guy said, Look, I, I'm here just to discover what the will of the Lord might be for my life. Again, the old board member said, Young man, did God send you here? Well, he's getting a little flustered at this point. He said, hey, uh, I'm not sure. I just wanted to meet with the board a third time. Young man, did God send you here? And so the poor kid just sort of caved in. He goes, no, I don't think the Lord sent me here. I was just trying to see if it was a fit. The old Irishman leaned back in his chair and smiled. And he said, well, that's good. Because the last four guys we had all said God sent them, and we had trouble with all four. I imagine that that church would have had trouble with Paul, because wherever Paul went and he was called, trouble followed him. I'd like to talk to you today a little bit about the difference between being driven and being called. And there is a difference. That terminology, being driven, I don't like it as much as being led or being called. You see, driven people will try to make things happen. They come with their agenda, and everything is measured by the net result. Driven people are people preoccupied with accomplishment, and they want the praise and the adulation that comes from that accomplishment. Not so with those who are called. Gordon MacDonald and great book that he wrote years ago called Ordering Your Private World, a book that I've revisited lately, writes this. Called people have strength from within, perseverance and power that are impervious to blows from without. And such calls are usually heard within an ordered private world. I got a letter this week from India. A missionary that we've supported for a number of years wrote a letter along the lines of, It's been rough. Please pray for me. The village where I minister is not open to the gospel. They booted me out of the village. Pray for strength that when I go back that they'll receive God's word. 
So there was no indication in the letter that this missionary wanted to stop. And I read through it and I thought, you know, you got to know you're called to go back with that kind of conflict and do it all over again. In this episode that we're about to read in Paul's life in Acts 21, a question would arise, at least it does in my mind, it does in others who have read it, and that is this. Was Paul the apostle called, or was he driven by some other, maybe personal agenda or impulse? The reason I ask that is because there are certain characteristics exhibited here that could tempt us to think, this guy's just a driven guy. He's unrelenting. He doesn't stop. He goes against the counsel and advice of a number of people, including some of his closest friends. And that has tempted a number of people in reading the passage to think, Paul was out of God's will during this time in his life. Now, I don't buy into that at all. I believe God called him smack dab in the middle of what he had decided to do. But because of some of these factors, the net result of his decision has caused people to think he wasn't listening to God. Now think of what happens. He makes a decision, as we'll read, to go to Jerusalem. Because he makes that decision, he loses his freedom. He gets arrested. He is under the custody, eventually, of the Roman government. He goes to Caesarea, spends two years in jail, goes through three hearings, is sent to Rome on a grain ship, is arrested again in Rome, put in prison, released after a period of time, recaptured, and killed. All because of this decision. So we ask, why? Was it worth it? Was he called to that, or was he just driven by some fleshly impulse. Now let me add something else to that. The decision that he makes is in conflict with what other people think he should do. What happens when you make a decision and other people around you say, I don't think that's a good decision? Do you listen to their voices? Do you follow your heart? How do you and I live with a magnet in our heart, and a compass in our heads. I hope to in part answer that today as we, as we go through this. There's three components to this message, three conditions. There is a decision, there is a disagreement, and there is a determination. Paul makes the decision. People around him are in disagreement. Paul makes a determination. Well, I've had you turn to Acts 21. But I really want you to start in Acts chapter 19. Would you turn there with me? Let's look at his choice. I take you to Acts 19 because this is the first hint of this choice. Acts 19, verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit. I want you to notice this wording. Paul purposed in the Spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Now go to chapter 20, if you would, verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So he makes his journey... 
He's definitely decided to go to Jerusalem. He's purposed in the Spirit, that is, before God, believing it's the Holy Spirit's will. He now speaks to a group of elders from Ephesus. Look at verse 22 of chapter 20. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. By the way, the Holy Spirit is mentioned 42 times in the book of Acts. And you get the sense is that he is superintending the affairs of the early church, including Paul the Apostle, who wanted to be sure that his choices were exactly according to the will of God. So he makes a decision. I'm going to Jerusalem. I purposed in the Spirit. I'm compelled by the Spirit. Why? I mean, why would he want to go backwards to Jerusalem? He left there. That was his launching pad. He was raised there spiritually. Why would he want to go back when he has made such headway in the Gentile world? He's drawn his circle wide. He's taken the gospel message to places. Never heard it. Why go back? Well, we can deduce from the New Testament two reasons that caused him to decide to go back to Jerusalem. Number one, he had a longing for his brothers in the flesh, that is, the Jewish nation. Now think about it. Paul was a rabbi. He had been a Pharisee, very strict, did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. His eyes were blinded to the truth. Now he's been awakened. Who better than Paul a.k.a. Saul of Tarsus, to go back to Jerusalem, stand in front of his Jewish brothers and sisters, and proclaim what he's discovered. I believe he wanted that chance. And here's how I know that. Let me read to you Romans chapter 9, not the whole chapter, just three verses. Paul writes, In the presence of Christ, I speak with utter truthfulness. I do not lie. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm that what I am saying is true. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. Did you hear those words? Can you imagine a person coming to the freedom of Christ, knowing they're saved and going to heaven to say, I'm willing to lose all of that, if that would mean salvation for others. There's only one other person I know about in the Scripture that had that kind of heart, and that was Moses. You remember in the Old Testament, he went up to Mount Sinai, received the law from God, came back down, the people were dancing and partying and hooping it up around an idol, and God said, Moses, step aside. I'm going to destroy these people and start all over. At that Moses prayed, and he said, Forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Like Moses, Paul was so longing to share with his people what God had done in his life. He had such a longing to share that, such a, a broken heart for them. Every now and then I'll be flipping through the stations on my little remote. You know, remotes are really... There's a lot of power in a remote. Whoever has the remote rules the room. I was binging and I stopped by a Christian television broadcast. Some of these things fascinate me. 
And uh, sometimes I'll put it on mute. And I'll watch. And on one particular occasion it was on mute. And this preacher looked like this. He looked really mad. And so I, I turned the sound on to see what he was saying. And his message was, God loves you. God's delighted with you. But the body language didn't reflect the message. It was R.W. Dale who said of Dwight L. Moody, the evangelist from Chicago, he said, I figure, I suppose that probably no one else should preach on hell except Dwight L. Moody. Because when he talks about hell, there's tears in his voice. There were tears in Paul's voice as he thought about his Jewish brethren. And he wrote this letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 9, on his way to Jerusalem. A longing for his brothers in the flesh. That's one reason he went back. A second reason he's going backward to Jerusalem is not only a longing for his brothers in the flesh, but a love for his brethren in the faith. Those Jewish people who have come to believe Jesus is the Messiah. You see, Paul had been out making his rounds, taking up a collection of money that he was going to deliver to those saints in Jerusalem. In Romans 15, he says, I'm going to minister to the saints in Jerusalem. And he was talking about the offering, the sum of money that he had taken. In bringing that money back to those people, he thought this is a good opportunity to provide a gesture of love. They're, they're going to see that Gentile believers love them and want to support them. And this is going to take some of my brothers in the faith who are very legalistic still. Yeah, they believe Jesus died for their sins, is the atonement, but they're still hung up on their rituals, still hung up on their religion. This will testify of the gospel of the grace of God. He thought it would open up their hearts. So here's the point. Spiritual man, Paul, makes a decision. I'm going to Jerusalem based on two things, a longing and a love. He makes that choice. He says, I purpose in the Spirit. I'm bound in the Spirit. But what do you do when other spiritual people around you think, that's not a good choice. I wouldn't be going there if I were you. Well, let's now look at the second condition. That is the disagreement. Take it to chapter 21. And there are several of these. I'll show you a few. Verse 1. Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them, we set sail, running a straight course. We came to Kos the following day to Rhodes and from there to Patara. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Okay, spiritual guy made a spiritual decision based on longing, based on love. I'm going to Jerusalem. He ports in Tyre. And there's a group of Christians there who tell Paul, don't go. And notice it says through the Spirit. I think that's an important distinction. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit said to Paul through them. They said through the Spirit. The New American Standard Bible has a little footnote that says, because of impressions made by the Holy Spirit. 
So probably a word of wisdom or knowledge or some prophetic impression. They say, Paul, the Holy Spirit's revealed something to us. Don't go to Jerusalem. Can you see we have a conflict? Paul purposed in the Spirit to go. He said, I go bound in the Spirit. Goes to Tyre. They say, we got something from the Holy Spirit. In our conclusion, don't go. By the way, the Greek tense here would render it like this. They told him again and again and again. He was there how many days? Seven. That's brutal. I imagine every conversation he had, every time he sat down with a leader, sat down with a meal. You know, Paul, you shouldn't go. Yeah, I know. I've heard it for seven days now. So how does he respond to that? Well, the text tells us, verse 5, chapter 21. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way. And they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. We knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. So what's Paul's response to them through the Spirit saying, don't go? His response is, bye-bye. See you later, alligator. I'm out of here going to Jerusalem. Thank you for that little prophetic word. He didn't listen to him. That's one disagreement. Let's look at another in the very next verse. When we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemais, greeted the brethren, stayed with them one day. And the next day we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, remember back in Acts chapter 6, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days... A certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. What a dramatic guy! He reminds me of some of the Old Testament prophets, like Jeremiah, who wore a yoke around his neck to picture to the people what would happen to them when the Babylonians would take over. Or he took a clay pot and he smashed it to tell them, you're not supple anymore to the molding of God. Isaiah was a prophet, the Bible says, who for three years ran around naked and barefoot, or at least his clothes torn up. Hosea married a prostitute. And there were several prophets who didn't just make a proclamation, but a visual demonstration. And Agabus was like one of them. Now here's the skinny on prophets. Prophets are like radios. A radio is a receiver and a transmitter, right? It receives signals and then it transmits them out through a speaker. Prophets are like that. They receive messages from God. They transmit those messages to God's people. So Agabus picked up from the Holy Spirit that the guy who owns this sash, this belt, is going to get in trouble when he goes to Jerusalem. So you got Christians in Tyre, a clergyman from Judea, all telling him, bad, bad stuff, man, if you go to Jerusalem. 
It's the second prophecy that he gets about this. But there's more. Look at the very next verse, verse 12. Now when we had heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Can you see how the odds are stacked against what he thought God told him to do? I'm going to Jerusalem. Oh, wait a minute. Christians from Tyre, clergymen from Judea, and companions of travel with Paul all say don't go. By the way, did you notice in that verse the change from they to we? It's a significant change. It's not just those guys telling Paul this, but we also. Dr. Luke wrote this. We would include Luke, Timothy, Silas, all friends, all spiritual, all saying, please don't go. There is not a single record of a single person encouraging Paul to go to Jerusalem in the Bible. In fact, go back to chapter 20. The text that we looked at, verse 22. He says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying, Chains and tribulation await me. So evidently, it's not just this leg of the journey in Tyre and Caesarea, but all along the way, repeatedly, the Holy Spirit has been saying, it's going to get bad, it's going to get really bad, every place he goes. So Paul stood alone. He stood alone. You have a decision made by a spiritual person. You have disagreement by spiritual people. So what do you do? What do you do? I had a young lady come into my office several years ago. She wanted to marry this guy. Her friend said, don't do it. So she came to see me. She said, I'm in a real quandary, Pastor. I want to marry this guy. I don't know if he's a Christian or not, but I, I want to marry him and I feel it's right. But all my friends say I shouldn't marry him. So I've decided that whatever you tell me is God's will. I said, you're not going to saddle me with that responsibility. You're going to make your own decision before the Lord. At best, I'll give you principles on how to discover that. But you know, the Bible does clearly say that it's good to get counsel, advice from other sources. It says in the book of Proverbs, In the multitude of counselors there is safety. In the multitude of counselors there is safety. But you say, what about Paul? Paul disregarded the counsel of others. You're wrong. He didn't disregard it. He waited carefully. And he thought, God's voice is a lot stronger than their voice. I'm going to Jerusalem. And something else. There were times when the Apostle Paul did exactly as others counseled him to do. And one of those examples is in this very chapter, chapter 21. We won't read it. Let me just tell you the story. He gets to Jerusalem. The brothers in the faith are there to greet him. Paul says, let me tell you what God's been doing in my life and ministry. They go, cool, great, neat. I'm paraphrasing. Um, but Paul, Paul, you know, there's rumors about you. There's rumors that you're telling Jewish people around the world that they don't have to get circumcised. They don't have to keep the law of Moses. They can throw out the traditions. And there's a lot of believers in Jesus who don't like you here because of that. So, Paul, to show them that you revere the law of Moses and our traditions, we have four guys here who have taken a Nazarite vow. 
you take them to the temple. And the last part of the vow is they're to shave their heads that they had let their hair grow. They're going to shave their head and they're going to pay money for the sacrifice. You pay the money and make this vow with them. And look at verse 26 of chapter 21. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. So can you see? It's not like Paul was a lone ranger who was aloof and didn't listen to people's counsel. There were times when he did exactly as they counseled. But this time, he did not. This time he said, I'm going to Jerusalem. And even though everywhere he went, they said, it will be painful, he said, I'm going. Well, that takes us to the third and really the heart of the message, the third and final condition, and that is the determination of a called man. See, I believe Paul was not driven, but that Paul was called. And there's three reasons I believe that. And these are three reasons you can check your own life with to determine, are you driven or are you called? Paul saw himself three ways. Number one, he saw himself as a servant, ready for anything. Number two, Paul saw himself as a steward, receiver of everything that he had was received from God. Number three, he saw himself as a soldier, resolute, in this one thing, to finish what God called them to do. So let's look at those, and then we'll finish up, close up. Chapter 21, we left off in verse 12, where everybody said, Don't go! Don't go! Please don't go! Verse 13, Then Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? Now watch this. For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. These are the words of a servant ready for anything. Oh, Paul, please. Oh, quit your blubbering. Don't you know that as a servant, I'm not ready not just to get beat up a bit. I'll die if need be. I'm a servant. Now here's the bottom line. Listen carefully. Paul made the distinction between prediction and prohibition. Okay, there's a prediction. Bad stuff when you go to Jerusalem. You're going to get bound. You're going to get beat up. That's a prediction. The infallibility of the Holy Spirit is not a question here. I believe everybody's gotten the same message. It's going to be bad when I get there. He didn't see the prediction as necessarily a prohibition. Paul questioned the interpretation of that prediction by well-meaning people. And so he thought, okay, it's going to get hard. I'm still going. I'm called to go. Now you might say, wait, 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 wait. What do you mean Paul was called to go? It meant pain. It meant suffering. It meant prison. How can that be the will of God? Well, let Paul answer that for you. When Paul gets taken to prison in Caesarea and put in prison in Rome, he writes a letter from Rome to people in Philippi with that same question. And this is what he says. I want you to know, brethren, that the things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. He's saying, I'm able to witness to prison guards who'd never be able to hear the gospel unless I was chained to them. The gospel is being furthered. I have an opportunity like never before. Now here's here's my point. 
Paul did not measure his life by personal comfort, physical comfort. He measured his life by spiritual calling. By spiritual calling. Only a servant could say what we read in Acts 20, 22. Behold, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. The word bound is a strong word. It means the binding of a servant or a slave with chains or ropes. I'm his servant. I'm ready for anything. I go bound in the Spirit. See, if Paul were driven, he couldn't have said that. Only a called person can say that. Scott Peck in Leadership Magazine writes, The best decision makers are those who are willing to suffer the most over their decisions, but still retain their ability to be decisive. Now think about it. If you live your life where you got nothing to lose, you can be led more easily. You can hear a calling more easily. If you're holding on and you've got a lot to lose, chances are you could be driven. You're more apt to be driven. You've got nothing to lose because you're a servant. That's the step in knowing you're called. Number two, not only was he a servant, he was a steward. That is, he saw his life as one who received what he had from God. Go back to chapter 20. Look at the wording in verse 24. Well, I'll take you back up. Verse 22. See, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me, except the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying, Chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. Now watch this. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. We talk about, well, my ministry is this and my... You don't have a ministry. You've received a stewardship. It's God's ministry that He has entrusted to you for a period of time. That's how Paul saw his life. Paul, being called, knew the principle of stewardship. Who I am, gifts I possess, stuff I own, time, talent, treasure. It's all been entrusted. I'm a steward. And Paul will write to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. So Paul thought like a steward. How can God use my life for his purpose. I'm a steward of a Jewish background. I'm a steward of being a Pharisee in my background. There's probably nobody else better crafted to go back to Jerusalem than me. I'm a steward of all of these funds we've collected from Macedonia. I'm going to go back and bless those people. That's how he saw his life. It's strange to me that a number of modern Christians don't regard themselves as either servants nor as stewards. But they have twisted. It's like God is their divine bellboy, their maid, their waiter. You know, they push the right button and room service. I name it, I claim it, I demand it. Last time I checked in the Bible, let's see, He's Lord and we're His servants and stewards. And the anthem of heaven will not be how great I am, but how great thou art. And in Revelation chapter 4, they sing the anthem to God, For you created everything, and for your pleasure they exist and were created. So here you have a guy, he's called because he saw himself 
as a servant, ready for anything, as a steward, receiver of everything that he had. And third is a soldier, resolute in this one thing, and that is to finish the task. So look at the end of the story in chapter 21, verse 14. So when he would not be persuaded, we stopped saying, the will of the Lord be done. Okay, Paul, we give up. We're not going to try to talk you out of it. We concede. Maybe this is the will of God. You betcha, Paul would say, I'm called to it. Now, there's another hint of that back in chapter 20. I know I'm turning you around a little bit. But look at the 24th verse again. Let it seep in. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. See, here's a guy who's a servant, steward, and now a soldier. He wants to finish what he started. His commanding officer gave him orders. He's not going to stop now. So much was this his calling that at the end of his life, his last words, or among his last words, are to young Timothy in 2 Timothy, the last chapter, where he writes this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Did you notice the word he used? I want to finish the race with joy. Not, I'm going to finish the race with obligation and responsibility. Listen, I don't think Paul said, I don't want to go to Jerusalem. Really, really I don't want to go. But I will. I will because I, I feel I... He wanted to go. Nobody's twisting his arm. He had the joy to go. He had a desire. He had this inner compulsion and burden because he was called by God and he wanted to finish it out. One of the most important texts of Scripture found is in Psalm 37. It's a beautiful passage. It says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. Remember that one? Now a lot of Christians sort of twist that in our Western thinking. We think, well, I'll just focus on God and He'll give me my heart's desires. That's not what it says. If you delight in the Lord, He'll actually give you desires that will be His desires. He'll put a desire in you that you never had before. Why does a missionary go to Africa? I have to. No, they go, I want to go. I'm called to go. Why did Paul want to go? Why did he go to Jerusalem? He wanted to go. He had a desire. One author writes, Desire is the extra. It's the part of the blanket that hangs over the bed that keeps you warm. It's the little extra that turns water into steam. At 211 degrees, water is hot enough for you to make a cup of coffee or to shave. Add one more degree, and that hot water changes into steam that will power a locomotive around the country or propel a steamship around the world. Now, folks, when God puts that little extra in you, that's a calling. When God plants that desire so that you finish the race with joy, that's a calling. You have an occupation. What is your calling? It might be the same. It might be one and the same. It is with me. It was always my passion and joy to do exactly as I'm doing. What is God calling you to do? So, are you driven or are you called? 
And sometimes there's a conflict with the counsel you get. I'm called, you say. Others say, well, you ask my opinion, and I don't think you are. So let me just end with two little bullet points when it comes to counsel and advice. Let me leave you with these. Number one, if you're looking for counsel, be very discerning. Be very discerning. Make sure it's godly counsel. Make sure it's counsel based on the principles of Scripture, biblical standards. Don't look for somebody who's going to tell you what you want to hear. Find somebody who will tell you, in honesty, what God sent them to declare. And when you ask their counsel, you've got to take their counsel. Doesn't mean you have to do it, but you should weigh it. If they give you advice and you've asked for the advice, then weigh it carefully. Doesn't mean it's the final word. You don't want to make the mistake of the gal who said, whatever you tell me is God's will. Listen, I might have had a bad burrito last night. You don't want me to tell you what God's will is. You need to discover that. So number one, if you're looking for counsel, be discerning. Number two, if you decide against counsel, be careful. Be careful. You may discover when you counsel with people that God's voice is still louder and still stronger than all of the other voices. In fact, there's times when God's voice is clarified with all the other voices. It stands in sharp contrast, even though there's unison with all of the other voices. But if you go against counsel, be very careful, because ultimately you will have to live with the decision that you make before the Spirit of God. So you know what my prayer is for you? My prayer this week is for you, is that you'll have a magnet in your heart and a compass in your head. You'll know what God called you to, and you'll do it passionately and serve Him passionately and finish the race. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you as your servants this morning. We have often said to you, whatever, whatever you want, Lord, and then when, when that ever comes, we complain. But Lord, we come with a renewed sense of that, and we come as your servants and say, we want to be, we desire to be ready for anything because we're your slaves, we're your servants. We want to be bound to your will. And we come as stewards, for we realize that all that we own, all that we have, all that we see around us in terms of our control or ownership, we're really not owning it. We're just stewards of it. We've received a stewardship. Help us to be faithful, Lord, in that. Then, Lord, as soldiers marching ahead with that unswerving sense of finishing a task you've called us to finish. We come as your soldiers, resolute in that which you have put in our lives. And Lord, if we don't exactly know what that is, we're excited to be in the process of discovering. And we trust that your Spirit will make it plain over the hours days, weeks, months, and years of our life. Do that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 
thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.